Um, all right, welcome to Faith. Uh, it's good to have you with us. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And uh, uh, if you're just joining us for the first time or you've been away for a little bit, we are in week two of a series that we have entitled Signs. And what we are doing in this series is uh, we are looking at eight different miraculous signs that Jesus performed and that John recorded in his biography of Jesus' life. And uh, last weekend, we talked about how these signs are and are not some different things. And so uh, these signs that John has uh, written down for us, they're not fairy tales. They're, they're not just meant to color the story. John means them to be taken as literal historical events. They are not sleight of hand. They are not parlor tricks. They are not an unintelligent understanding of natural laws. John means for us to understand them as real acts of God intervening in the usual course of natural laws. And these signs, they're not just like things that Jesus did at random. They're not things that John wrote down haphazardly, right? These, these have a purpose. They're meant to authenticate a messenger and a message from God. In fact, John writes very specifically about the purpose for the signs that he, you know, he, said, he tells us Jesus performed all kinds of signs. I've chosen these specific ones and I've done so for this purpose, John says, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. John is saying, hey, I've included these signs, and I want you to understand certain things about who Jesus is as Messiah and God and what it really means to have life in him. And, and last week, we, we spent our entire time just kind of walking through this idea that you can believe in literal miracles and not need to check your brain at the door of the room in order to do so. And so if you struggle with the idea of miracles, that's okay. I, but I would encourage you, go back, get online, watch last week's message. It will be beneficial to you as we go forward because starting this week, week and each week thereafter, we're going to take one of these miracles. We're going to drill down deep and we're going to go, okay, what is this teaching us about who Jesus was? What is this teaching us about how to have life in him or both? So we will pray and then we're going to dive into the first miracle for the series. Father, just as we begin today, please open our hearts, our minds to you and to your truth. Father, I want to pray for my friend Sue Heights. We're going to be getting together and praying for her as just uh, as a larger group later this afternoon. But this morning as a church, we want to pray for her. God, thank you so much that all the tests that she had, that this is the best case scenario that she's going to be able to have this surgery. But Father, she still has lung cancer. It is still aggressive. And God, we just ask for your hand of mercy and your hand of healing on her and on her body. Father, we want to pray just for Minnesota and uh, for the people there. And just again, as there is uh, violence and you have people taking a very nuanced and complicated set of circumstances and trying to make them way too simple on one side or the other. Father, I pray that as your people we would seek to be sympathetic and tender-hearted and loving and humble with one another, especially with these kind of issues. 
Help us, please, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So John records uh, his first miracle in chapter 2. We're going to pick up at verse 1. It'll be up on the screen. If you have a device or a Bible, you can follow along that way. But as John begins, he begins this way. He says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. Now, it's interesting to me, and and John will tell us, he's going to identify later on, this is Jesus' first miracle. It's interesting to me that the first miracle does not take place on a high and holy day. It does not take place in the temple. It doesn't happen at the foot of the altar. For his first miracle, Jesus chooses to perform this at a wedding, at a party, if you would. Because if if you understand a, a first century Jewish wedding, you understand this is a party. It begins at the, at the house of the bride. They have a small ceremony, a small controlled celebration afterwards. And then after that, the, the, the bride, the groom, the whole wedding party, they make their way from the bride's house to the groom's house. And as they do, they make noise. They call all kinds of attention to themselves. They basically parade from one house to the next. And when they get to the groom's house, they have a party that lasts for a week or better. They're not messing around, right? None of this LaCroix stuff, right? They didn't do this right. Have a party. And, and, and really, this is, this is a communal affair, all right? Like if you live in town, you're welcome to come. In fact, when they parade by your house or you hear them on the other block, that's your cue to join the group and to, and to show up for this party. It's just how a first century Jewish wedding worked. Now, whether we're talking about the first century today, you know what the trouble with a wedding is? You could wind up married. <laughs> you wind up married a long time. Like we have Richard and Nancy Lewis, and this weekend they are celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary today. Yeah, let's give them a hand. You are a saint, Nancy Lewis, all right? Some of your friends, people who love you, got you these flowers to celebrate that. Make sure you take those home with you, all right? Here's the trouble with a wedding. Stuff goes wrong. (laughs) If you've ever officiated a wedding, and I've officiated a lot of weddings, all kinds of things can go wrong at weddings, right? right? And so, like, uh, I, I can tell you story after story after story of what could go wrong at a wedding. My favorite happened at Mike and Jean's wedding, all right? All right, so here's, here's the deal. Like, when I perform weddings, we're going to do vows, and we're going to do some traditional vows, but if you want to, I'm like, hey, you can do some personal vows in addition to the traditional vows. And so I will say to a couple, listen, here's how this works. You have two choices. Either you hand me yourself your, 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 your personal vows, and I will then put them into my notes, or you be a big boy, big, big girl, bring them up on stage with you. I don't care how we do this. Do one or the other, right? So nothing will go wrong. Well, at this wedding, something went wrong, all right? And we have video footage of it, all right? So uh, let's see how a younger, balder version of Mike tried to navigate this. Let's watch. What vows would you share from your heart with Michael today? And if you're looking at me, nobody gave me vows from you. Who had them? <laughs> I, I, I'm not joking. <laughs> Who'd you give them to? Terrence was given to you. Terrence? 
Is Tara in the house? That's what that was. Remember that note they brought in? Oh, I already read them. Well, do you have to know? <laughs> now it's all making sense. Yeah. Okay. Don't, 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 don't okay. leave. That would be bad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they, they in the groom's room? Yes. Are, are they in an obvious place where my wife is going to be able to find them? They're in that bag. They're in that bag. She's not going to find them in that bag, Michael. Yeah. Rick, you want to shoot down there and help her out? Yeah, take the sea ranchers. Sorry. I, I got to tell you, they're wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> It, it, was, it was the craziest thing, and I'm, I'm just buying time. Um, they brought me this note, and they said, somebody said to give these to Pastor Mike. So I started reading them, right, because I'm Pastor Mike. And I thought, this isn't for me. I shouldn't be reading this. I think this is for you, Mike. And, and, and so we, we gave them to Michael, and we, we couldn't figure out for the life of us how all this went down and why they were being given to me. And I'm running out of things to say now. I'm, 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 I don't know else how to kill this dead air here. Somebody asked me, how's everything going? I said, great. I didn't see this one coming. <laughs> you didn't memorize this, did you? No, you wrote it down so you wouldn't have to. I, I hear the footsteps. This is a good thing. <laughs> You're the man, Rick. You guys are going to edit all this out, right? All right. We're going to get serious so they can they have a nice, clean cut. Gene, what, what vows would you share from your heart with Michael? It, it didn't edit it out. Yeah. In fact, uh, in the back of the room here, we have Rick, the man who went to get the vows. Uh, just showed up at church today, all right? So um, what went wrong at the wedding in John chapter 2 is radically different. <laughs> Mary comes running to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. <laughs> they have no more wine. They ran out. And you're like, what's the big deal? First century Jewish wedding, huge deal. Like who you had at your wedding, how you treated your guests, this spoke volumes to your social status then and for decades to come. Like they run out of wine. This couple is forever known as the couple who throws a lousy party. This is a shame, honor-based culture. This will shame you for like, for, forever. They should be like, yeah, they're, they're, they're the lousy hosts. They don't have enough wine to make sure make everybody's got enough to drink. To, you know, it was serious enough. First century Judaism, this was cause for litigation. You could, I'm serious. The guests could sue the happy couple to get a portion of their wedding gift back. Like you could, like, this is like you show up at a wedding, the chicken is dry, right? You know, you can sue for 30% of the check you put into the card. This is how it worked, you know? So Mary comes, she's all in a tizzy. You know, we got to do something, right? So she tells Jesus, and Jesus answers. Now, let me warn you, if you're not familiar with John 2, 
Jesus' answer can be a little bit disconcerting. Here it is. Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour is not yet come. Woman, <laughs> why do you involve me? My hour is not yet come. Now, keep in mind, this is Jesus' mother asking him to do something. I don't know about the house you grew up in, okay? The house I grew up in, if mama comes and asks you to do something and you respond like this, I probably would not have got past woman, all right? But if I manage to get the rest of the sentences out, one of two things is going to happen. All right? Either Joanne is going to slap the taste right out of my mouth, all right? Or if my dad can get to me first, he's going to swoop down out of nowhere and rip the soul right out of my body, right? You better be the Messiah, the Son of God. If you're going to ask, your mama says, can you help? And this is where you go, right? Just this is the house I grew up in, a little insight. Here's the deal. As disrespectful as this feels on the surface, it isn't. And if you understand all that Mary is asking, and you understand what Jesus is saying in response, you begin to understand that. We'll start with Mary. Mary's like, hey, they have no more wine. M Mary isn't just asking Jesus to take care of uh, you know, the problem with the not enough booze. What Mary is doing is she is asking Jesus to use this set of circumstances to launch his public ministry in the way she thinks as his mama he should launch it. See, Mary has known from, from the beginning there is something different about her child, something special about her boy. Now, every mom thinks this about their kid, right? Mary has really good reason to think this. Like the Immaculate Conception, you know? Like angels come to her and Joseph and say, your child is going to sit on the throne of his father David. Your child's kingdom will never come to an end. Your child is going to you know, like save their people from their sins. Again, any mothers in the room get angelic messages like that with their kids? Right? I mean, this is different. Shepherds show up. Wise men show up. They're at the temple. Simeon and Anna are freaking out. Twelve years later, Jesus is teaching the religious leaders. Mary has very good reason to believe, my kid's different. My kid's going to be the Messiah. Right? And, and now, now, John the Baptist has been running around saying crazy things about Jesus. How the Spirit descended on him like a dove at his baptism. How Jesus is preexistent, how Jesus is the Lamb of God, how Jesus is the Son of God. And now Jesus has some disciples of his own. And so when Mary comes and says, hey, they have no more wine, Mary is not like, Jesus, can you send Peter and Andrew down to 7-Eleven and have them pick up a few boxes? We're running low here. No, Mary's like, Jesus, for 30 years now, I have been a proud mama fit to burst. Come on, boy. Like, now's the time to show them what you got. Now's the time to show them who you are. Your cousin John got the ball rolling. Pick it up and run with it here, kid. Now's the time to show them you're the Messiah come to save Israel. And part of how we know this is where Mary is going, what she is asking, is how Jesus responds. He says, why do you involve me? Literally translated, what is there between you and me? 
And then this is so important. My hour has not yet come. Pastor James has provided us with a, a reading plan for John. You can get it off of the website. If you read through John, watch for this, this phrase, my hour. Jesus uses it repeatedly. As he does, he uses it as the term that describes his purpose for being here on earth. This is, this is the phrase he uses to describe the mission he's received from his father. These are the code words to describe what kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be. Jesus, his, his purpose, his mission, his ultimate goal of, of being the Messiah, you read through John and you discover it's, he's come to be the suffering servant who's going to shed his blood for the sins of humanity. When his hour comes, that's what's going to happen. The trouble with that is this isn't the kind of Messiah that first century Judaism is looking for. They're not looking for a suffering servant. They're looking for a conquering king. They're looking for somebody who's going to set up Israel as the dominant world power. Somebody who is going to make Judaism the one world religion. And Mary, she's not immune to that thinking or those expectations. And so when she says they've run out of wine, she's saying, Jesus, now's the time to, be the, to, to declare yourself the Messiah we've all been waiting for. And Jesus says, what is there between you and me? Mom, we're not on the same page here. This isn't my hour. And when it comes, I'm going to be a very different kind of Messiah than the one you are looking for or the one you expect. His mother asks him to do something and Jesus tells her no. Now, I love Mary's response. She looks to the servants and she says to them, do whatever he tells you. And this is more than just some mama who's like, okay, we're going to do it anyway. Now, there's actually something beautiful here. There's surrender here. See, Mary comes to Jesus and she's got to figure it out. She knows what he should do. She knows when he should do it. She knows how he should go about doing it. And Jesus says, no. We're not going to do it here. We're not going to do it now. We're not going to do it that way. And when he tells her, no, Mary doesn't like get all mad at him. She doesn't storm off in a huff. She doesn't tell him, I don't believe you're the Messiah anymore, you know. She, moms, she does not come at him with, if you really loved me. <laughs> all those years I cooked and cleaned and changed your diapers and now this is what I get. No, do whatever he tells you to do. She thought she had it figured out. She thought she knew the right thing. And when he says no, she says, okay, we'll do it your way. Do whatever he says. And it's at this point that the first miracle begins to unfold. John tells us nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, and each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So, so in Judaism, you've got the Mosaic Law. Basically, 613 do's and don'ts for how God's people are meant to relate to God and to life. But, but over the, the centuries, you had 
added to the Mosaic law something known as the tradition of the elders. And the tradition of the elders is thousands and thousands of additional rules that get piled on top of the Mosaic law, all in an effort to apply the Mosaic law to every conceivable circumstance in life. And by obeying all of these different rules and rituals, this is how you're going to be made right with God. You've got these six jars that are used for ceremonial washing. The, the, the tradition of the elders, one of the things it talked about was hand washing and foot washing and clothing washing and dishes washing. Again, all the different ways you can wash yourself and stuff so that you're good with God. Jesus has them take those six jars and he says, fill the jars with water. So they fill them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Now, this process of turning water into wine, this is something that had been taking place for thousands of years up until that point. Through natural processes, you put a seed into the ground and you water it. It begins to sprout, you water it some more. It, it begins to grow and bear fruit, you water it still. You, you harvest the fruit, you crush the, the grapes into juice, you let the, the juice ferment over time, and you have water that's turned into wine. But here in John 2, John tells us that Jesus is present. Jesus, who, who John describes in chapter 1, is God come to us with skin on. Jesus, who John describes in John chapter 1 as the creator of the universe, the one who has set natural law into motion. And what John is describing for us here is, is, is Jesus, in John chapter 2, he steps into the system, demonstrating that the system is not closed. He, inter, he, he injects enormous power and energy from outside of the system into the system and instantaneously and miraculously he turns water into wine. And after he does, the, the, the master of the banquet, we're told that he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. He's like, hey, what are you doing? Everybody, everybody knows you bring out the good stuff. You let people have a drink or two. You let them have something to eat. Their palate becomes you know, undiscerning and then you break out the cheap stuff. What are you guys playing at? And then John finishes this way. He says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And again, John tells us this miracle and all the others he's going to record for us, he's got them there for a purpose. He says, these were written that you would continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. John's going, hey, this water into wine thing, this is supposed to teach us about who Jesus is and where life is found in him. Now, there, there are a host of different things we could look at about this is who Jesus is, the Son of God, this is who he is as a Messiah, this is what it means to have life in him. 
for time's sake, we're going to limit it to two. And we're going to go after the two that I found most enjoyable. I mean, if you're like, well, how come we're going after the two that you liked best? It's because I'm speaking. And if you want to speak next week, fill out your connection card, and we can talk about that, right? So here we go. Two things that I just appreciate about who Jesus is, is this miracle reveals. First one is this. This miracle reveals to us that Jesus' capacity to care, it knows no limits. Remember, this is the first miracle. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think, okay, Miracle number one, we got to set the bar high. Miracle number one, Jesus, this is first impression time. Like you need to save this for something really big, something really important. And then I look at what's going on in John chapter two, and I'm like, how is running out of wine at a wedding really big and really important? Like, I mean... In the world at that time, you have starvation, you have slavery, you have poverty, you have disease, you have government oppression and more, all running unchecked. How, how, how does not enough booze at a party compare with all of that? Or, or like outside of an insignificant handful of people there in Palestine, who's going to know or care that Jesus has done this? Uh, how does not enough wine at a wedding warrant the attention of, of the author, creator, and sustainer of the universe? In my mind, it just doesn't. But in the mind of Jesus, it does. See, because his mother cared, because that couple cared, because their parents cared, Jesus cared. The, the, the principle is really very simple. If it matters to you, it matters to Jesus. If there's something in your life that you care about, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be theologically significant. It doesn't need to shake the world. It doesn't need to register on a cosmic scale. If you care, Jesus cares. It, it, this is why Jesus will say to you, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even your very hairs on your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. If you care about it, God cares about it. See, most of us, we would agree, there's nothing too big for Jesus. John records this miracle to remind us that there's nothing too small for him either. He's like, hey, bring this thing to Jesus. If it matters to you, it matters to him. It, it, this is why Paul will say to us to pray to Jesus in everything. Because there's nothing too small. It's why Peter will tell us, bring all of your cares to him. Cast all of your cares on him. It's because he cares for you. 
whether we're talking about what's going on at home or at school or at work, with your family, with your kids, with your health, with sin you're trying to, to, to get the better of, if it matters to you, it matters to Jesus. His capacity to care knows no limits. And so like Mary, I, I would encourage you, bring that to him. A thing that matters to you, bring that to him. Now, like Mary, he may tell you no. He may not always do exactly what you want him to. That does not mean that he does not care. It could mean he's smarter than you. It could mean he has bigger vision than you do. But he cares. He's saying, bring this thing to me. And then surrender. Do whatever it is he tells you to do. So for me, one of the things that I just appreciate about this miracle is it reveals to us that Jesus' capacity to care knows no limits. The other thing that I really appreciate about this miracle is this. It reveals to us that Jesus is the one who transforms. Jesus, again, he's injected just enormous power and energy from outside of the system into the system. And as he does so, Jesus, he is trying to get people to understand not only is he the one who can transform things when it comes to chemistry, but Jesus is the one who can transform things when it comes to our very lives. See, I don't think it was a coincidence that Jesus transformed water into wine in those jars that are used for ceremonial cleansing. Think about it. He could have used any jars in the house. It, it would have made more sense to use the jars that were empty that the wine was in in the first place, right? But he doesn't. He intentionally uses jars that people have turned to in an effort to try and earn their way to God. Jesus, is, he's working with a group of people who know they haven't always lived the lives they should. They know they are not right with God. They, 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 are, they are full on aware of the sin and the shame that they carry both from the present and the past. Their solution up to this point has been, I'm going to ritual, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to good works. I'm going to merit my way to God. I'm going to ceremony my way back into God's good graces again. With this miracle, Jesus is saying, hey, this isn't going to work. And the thing is, they know this. If you've ever tried to live like this, you know, like I can try and good work my way into this thing. And all it does is leave me feeling dirty on the inside while I look good on the outside. By turning water into wine in those jars, Jesus is letting them, he's declaring to them, I've come to change all this. This is going to be different now. I, I have come to wash you clean, to make you white as snow, and I'm going to do so with the new wine of my blood. You, you're not going to earn and merit your way into God's favor. We're going to take my good works and my merit, and we're going to apply them to your life. Instead of trying to change from the outside in, I'm going to change you from the inside out. 
With this miracle, Jesus is telling them, I'm the one who can transform a life. So, as we finish, we're going to pray. Whether you're with us in person, whether you're with us online, if you know, you need to be transformed. If you know, you haven't been the person God's called you to be and try as you might, you cannot change from the outside in. I'd invite you to pray with me and to let Jesus wash you clean with the new wine of his blood. At the same time, if if you're here today and you've been carrying this weight, thinking this thing, this isn't big enough, this isn't important enough, and it's just weighing you down, again, I'd invite you to pray. To name that thing to God, to give that to him. Because it matters to you, it matters to him. Surrender that to him. Surrender yourself and your will to him. And choose to do whatever he says. Let's pray together. Jesus, some of us, we just come to you confessing. We are broken. We have sinned. And all our best efforts to earn our way to you have just left us looking good on the outside and just further broken on the inside. We can't do this. We need a Savior. We need someone who can wash us clean. We just just ask that you would do that in the new wine of your blood. We just surrender all of who we are to you. We put our faith in you. Father, others of us, we're, we're just carrying around this weight and maybe we've thought about it. Maybe, maybe it's just been a subconscious thing for us, but we haven't brought it to you. But if Jesus is a picture of our Father in heaven, if he is the image of the invisible God, and you care about this thing because we care about it. We just want to name this thing to you. We want to lay it at your feet. This is our time of surrender. Help us to do whatever Jesus says. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.